The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you again this week. Uh, Let me pause in prayer before we dig into the word today. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we have a place to come together uh, to learn about you, to hear your word, uh, to sing songs of praise and worship that remind us of truths about who you are. We thank you that there's heat in the building, there's lights above us. And God, we thank you that we live in a place where we are even allowed to meet in a way like this. We take that for granted so often, I think. Thank you for this place and this time. Spirit, I pray that you would move in this place now as I speak. Take my words. uh, Speak to our hearts. Lead us and guide us. uh, And help us to learn something new about you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing through our series on the Minor Prophets. As we look to Advent this week, as was mentioned, uh, we're talking about joy, or the week represents joy. Thank you, Jamie, for reading so well this morning. This morning, we're going to go back to the book of Joel. Uh, So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Joel chapter 2. We'll be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, Joel chapter 2. We'll read verses 28 and 29. Just give you a minute to pull that up. Joel chapter 2. And the prophet writes these words. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Joel. We know a little bit about this Joel, but Joel the prophet. Uh, We know that he was a son of Pethuel, but we don't know really anything about him either. Tim Hawkins notes that the immediate occasion for the message of Joel seems to have come between a locust swarm which invaded Judah some time before he wrote. Now this ominous and catastrophic event provided the backdrop for Joel's call to repentance. He used this agricultural calamity as the picture of a yet future devastation which could be avoided by true repentance. Now scholars also look at Joel and the book of Joel and debate whether this is one of the earliest writings in the prophets or one of the latest. Yet it seems reasonable as we we look at the the writings of the prophet, uh, this is probably one of the earliest prophetic books that we have in our Old Testament for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, the list of enemies of Israel that we find mentions Phoenicians and Philistines and Greeks and Sabaeans, but not groups like the Assyrians or the Babylonians. We also see that Joel is quoted directly by both Amos and Isaiah, suggesting that his work would have been written first. So from details like these and more, it seems pretty safe to date the writing of Joel somewhere around 835 BC. Now the dating of the book is important to us this morning because we've been talking about Advent as the anticipation, the coming of 
the Messiah, both the first time and as Jesus in the manger as we celebrate at Christmas, but also the second coming. So it's important to remember that this is when this was written. And we take the hopes of the Jewish nation who would have had this text for over 800 years before Jesus arrived on the scene. And just imagine, again, the team saying, come thou long expected Jesus. These were things that were said four, five, six, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus came. So there's an anticipation of our Old Testament Jewish nation. Let's move back to our text here. Now the danger, of course, of taking a chunk of verses, in our case this morning too, and just reading them and trying to find some details out of them that help us learn more about God and go through our weeks is that you're often not getting the whole story. You see, Joel didn't write his work. None of the writers wrote and said, okay, chapter one, Joel writes this. Uh, I'm going to divide these up in nice, even verses so it's easier for us to memorize 3,000 years later. Rather, Joel wrote one big, long chunk, and later we've added the chapters and verses together. So it's, it's one work, not necessarily in the separations that we have today. It's essential for us to remember that as you read our Bibles, that there is in fact danger of plucking a verse out here and a verse out there and taking it out of context and out of occasion and situation as well. So to try and avoid doing that a little bit this morning, I'm going to defer to commentator Richard Patterson, who says this about our verses and Joel as a whole. He says that the introductory formula in this section, starting at verse 228 and continuing to the end of Joel's book, this formula begins clearly and places the events that follow that he begins to write about after those that were detailed earlier in chapter 2. So since the previous section of chapter 2, verses 1 through 27, dealt with the near future, it can be safely presumed that the events prophesied here lay further beyond. So this is not something that happened right away after Joel wrote it, but rather, again, the people were looking forward in anticipation for these things to be fulfilled. He continues and says, Indeed, these chapters, the end of chapter 2 and 3, disclose the Lord's eschatological or end times intentions. Two primary thoughts that we get out of the, the second half of Joel are the Lord's promise for personal provision in the lives of his own, in the lives of his people. Specifically, we find that in our text this morning. And if we continued into chapter 3, the prediction of his final triumph on behalf of his own at the culmination of the history of mankind. So today we're, we'll narrow our focus a little bit on the verses we read, 22 and, or 28 and 29, pardon me, and look at the prophecy as the Lord's promise of provision in the lives of his own. I'll read our verses again. If you still have Joel chapter 2 in front of you, you can follow with me. And it shall come to pass that afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy... Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now there's a few things that I want to pull out of these two verses, and it may sound slightly repetitive, but that's the point. We'll start with how he begins. Uh, Joel writes God's words of, I will pour out. And we're going to stop right there already. This pouring out of God's spirit was going to be a new thing. This meant that God was going to be giving his spirit to everyone. In the past, we'd seen God give his spirit only to select individuals, 
at a certain time, maybe even for only a certain time, to complete a certain task. So this was a big deal because now we're imagining taking a five-gallon or 20-liter pail and pouring out its contents all over and it's splashing everywhere as opposed to just letting drips fall on, for instance, certain people who would then have God's Spirit. Joel continues with my spirit. And the prophet spoke of Yahweh's promise to pour out his spirit on the people. Robert Jameson notes that, that this is the spirit that proceeds directly from the Father and the Son. And at the same time is one with the Father and the Son. So again, we're trying to drive home this point that the very spirit of God that we read about at creation, that we read about scattered throughout our Old Testament was going to be given to, again, not just some people, but all people. Moving to our next piece of the text, on all flesh. Depending on your translation, these words might read something a little bit different, like all people, or mankind, or humankind, or you may have all flesh in front of you. This phrase, all flesh, is used several times in the Old Testament. In Genesis and Leviticus, often we see it as calling to all creatures, which include humans and animals. In Isaiah 66, the same phrase refers to people from all nations, but not necessarily 100% of all people. In Ezekiel 21, it refers to all of Israel. One chapter earlier, in Ezekiel 20, it speaks of all men of all nations, but again, not necessarily 100% of all people, but generally all people from all nations. And in Zechariah 2, we refer to all mankind again, all people. In our case here today, in Joel, it's most likely referring to either all humankind, or again, all nations, opposed to only Israel. You may be catching on to the common theme here. This was not just a, a new thing, but also a huge deal. Because the Spirit of God was now being said that it would not just be for, first of all, a select few of Israel. The Spirit of God was not going to be given to just Israel, but fully poured out onto all humankind. All mankind could have a part of the Spirit of God in them. Continuing on, Joel talks about sons and daughters and old and young. And again, what the Lord intended here is that the Holy Spirit would not be poured out See if you're tracking with my common thought here. On select individuals for a particular task, but rather on all believers, young and old, male and female alike, regardless of their status. This would bring forth a new time of renewed spiritual activity, of prophesying, of speaking the truth of God, of dreams and visions of what God had for his kingdom coming. Richard Patterson tells us here. Again here... Included, we're not just the privileged few we're going to get the Spirit of God as the prophets of the Old Testament, but now men and women of all ages and ranks. Continuing on, they promised dreams and visions. Coming again from your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. This would be seeing what God is, what God has, what God wants for his people. Again, not just the people of Israel, but all people. The language here is inclusive. It says your old men will dream dreams, but your young men will see visions. So there's not a place in between for if, if you don't quite consider yourself old, but can't pull off being young, 
You don't fall through the cracks here. Again, this is for everyone. We here as well see that there are three modes that God uses to reveal himself in the Old Testament. Prophecies, dreams, and visions. These are a symbol of his full manifestation of himself to the people. Again, not in miraculous gifts to some, but his indwelling spirit in all. Tracking with me, I hope. And finally, even on the male and female servants or slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. If there's a final surprise here in this statement, Joel tells us that even slaves will have the spirit of God. This was not restricted to a social status type thing. Once again as well, the word slave or servant is not simply referring to those Israelites who had a debt of servitude, but it included foreign slaves. Again, this is a brand new thing. The prophecy indicates that non-Israelite, non-Israelites would have the Spirit of God poured out on them. I, I for one, am thankful for that. All of this then either takes what Moses talked about in Numbers 11... His desire that all the people of God should prophesy, it expands on and extends that to the idea, or, excuse me, it extends the idea of who the people of God were. Whether it's just the people of Israel as God's chosen people, or rather, perhaps like the promise of Genesis 12, where Abraham is promised to be a blessing to all nations, that this passage extends the idea of who God's people are to all nations as opposed to just Israel as before. I think it's safe to say that it's what this is what's happening. It's not just extending for the people of Israel will get God's spirit, but rather all people will have God's spirit poured out on them. So what can we take away from this passage in Joel? Well, I hope part of it's clear. God was sending his spirit, pouring out his spirit for who? All people, very good, very good. Men and women, young and old, slave and free, Israelite and Gentile, everyone. God was pouring, would promise that he would pour out his spirit on everyone. Let's fast forward some 850 years or so. Imagine waiting for something to happen for 850 years. I was going to make a flames joke, but I'll pause from that. Or a Canucks joke, that'd be even better. Let's fast forward 850 years to the time of Jesus, when Jesus walked the earth here. And he talked about the coming of the Spirit many times, but for our uh, purposes today, we'll focus in on his words in John 16. So again, if you have your Bibles, flip to John chapter 16 with me. And we'll read uh, a bunch of verses, starting at verse 7, we'll go right through to 15. John chapter 16. Jesus says these things. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because the world doesn't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father... And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that my Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now I suspect that at the time when Jesus was sharing these words, his disciples found it to be kind of a tough thing to hear. See, they were living, doing life with Jesus. They got to see the miracles. They got first-hand teaching right out of Jesus' mouth. You know, they shared meals with him. They, they were doing life together. So I wonder how, in their minds, could they possibly think that it would be better if Jesus left them? I want to pause here on that line of thinking before we get to see the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy to ask us a couple questions today to kind of allow us to take stock of of our own mindset, our own thoughts. The questions may seem a little bit loaded, but bear with me here. First of all, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus? Second, Assuming that you answered yes to that first one, if you're a follower of Jesus and and trust Jesus, do you believe that he spoke truth? Following that, if you trust Jesus and believe that he spoke truth, do you believe that in fact it is better that he left the earth? Now personally, I think practically... We and myself often think that perhaps it would be better to have the resurrected man, Jesus, walking along with us. And we had the whole trend of the bracelets and what would Jesus do uh, that lasted for a while and is still around. And we we think perhaps if, if Jesus was just here, he could answer these difficult questions. He could, you know, lead us through this difficult time. He could teach us here. He could, you know, concoct a pretty good Christmas dinner probably too. So in that line of thinking, if we trust Jesus, if we believe he spoke the truth, and because of that believe that it's in fact better he left the earth, do we as followers of Jesus believe that we have all that we need in the Holy Spirit? That one stings a little bit, I think. Today we don't have time to fully unpack what it might be mean to have to fully look at the, what the Holy Spirit is and who the Holy Spirit is and, and what it means for each of us, but allow me to quickly make a couple points that can help us out here. If we look at our John 16 passage, we learn a few things about the Spirit. First, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit points out sins in our own life, places where we have wrongs in our own life so that we can turn. Uh, Repent and, and go back towards God. The Spirit brings truth. The Spirit guides us towards truth. The Spirit also speaks truth, the truth of God the Father and the truth of God the Son. And the Spirit brings glory to Jesus. J.I. Packer wrote a concise theology. Now, without trying to make too much of a class here, I just want to make a few points of what he brings up about who the Spirit is, who the the Helper 
as Jesus calls him, was. Packer says these things. Before Jesus' passion, before the cross, Jesus promised that that he and the Father would send the disciples another counselor, another helper, or to go back to Joel, would pour out their spirit. This counselor of paraclete, coming from the Greek word parakletos, meaning one who would support, is a helper, advisor, a strengthener, an encourager, an ally, and an advocate. Now Jesus' ministry was that of the first paraclete, and he is promising a replacement who, after Jesus left, would carry on the teaching and testimony that Jesus started. This ministry of a, of a paraclete or a helper is by its very nature very personal and relational, implying that the one who is doing this ministry themselves is a person. So looking at the Old Testament, we see much of the Spirit's activity in creation, in revelation, in enabling for, for service, and in inward renewal. But the Old Testament didn't necessarily make clear that the Spirit was a distinct divine person. In the New Testament, however, it becomes clear that the Spirit is truly a person, distinct from the Father, as the Son is. This is apparent not only from Jesus' promise of another counselor, but also from the fact that the Spirit does many things, including speaks, teaches, witnesses, searches, determines, intercedes, can be lied to, can be grieved. Only a personal being could these things happen to. So we've seen this person of the Spirit being poured out, promised that it would be poured out. So let's move into Acts chapter 2. Again, if you have your Bibles, flip ahead a little bit to Acts chapter 2. Now this chapter would have been talking, or writing and recording events that happened nearly 900 years after Joel wrote. And in here we'll find some familiar words. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they, the multitude, were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, were hearing them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This may be the familiar part here. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. Notice the words right from Joel 2 here being spoken by Peter. N.T. Wright comments on Acts 2, on this chunk of Acts 2, in this way. It says, imagine a moment, long promised, dreamed of, planned for, mulled over, prayed for, agonized over. A moment when things would work out right at last, when hopes would be realized and good times would begin. A moment when a huge sigh of relief would give way to a sense of new possibilities. Now at last, things could really start. That's how the Jews of the first century read their scriptures, for they saw themselves as the generation for whom it all would come true. At the same time, they studied and memorized and prayed over and puzzled over many old texts, texts which which spoke of terrible things that would happen, but of a time when it would all be reversed, when God would bring them to a new place and do new things with them. And some of the text spoke of the signs that they would see when they were arriving at this new moment. And the signs would say, you're here, and this is where you're going. It's only by imagining that world, a world where people were puzzling and praying over ancient texts to try and find urgently needed meetings in times of great stress and sorrow, that we can understand how Peter could even think of launching into a long quotation from the prophet Joel, in order to explain the apparently confused babbling and shouting that was going on. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, which included Joel's quotation, he points that at long last, Joel's words anticipating the Spirit of God being poured out on all people, as well as Jesus' promise of a helper, a counselor, a paraclete, was happening right in front of their eyes. But friends, this Advent season, as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, who was God, born as a baby, who lived a life blameless before God, and then offered his life as a sacrifice so that we could return to have the relationship with the Creator God that we were meant to have. We remember those things. We also look to the promises that Jesus gave during his time on earth. We look at them for encouragement and instruction and guidance in an effort to follow his teachings in anticipation of the second advent, when Jesus returns at the end of our age. This morning I hope that we can realize that we can take comfort in knowing that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection brought out the long-awaited pouring out of the Spirit of God on all believers, and that we, as believers of God, followers of Jesus, truly do have the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Counselor. Each of us do. And we have Him to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, to teach us, and to point us towards giving glory to God. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you that you are a God who holds everything in his hands, that holds time in his hands. We thank you, God, that you are faithful and true and words that you gave some 3,000 years ago almost, after a long awaited time, were fulfilled. We thank you, God, that you came. Thank you, Jesus, that you came as a babe, as we celebrate at Christmas time, that you lived a life perfect, holy, and blameless before God, that you sacrificed your life so that we could be in relationship with God the way we were created to be. We thank you, Jesus, that in fact it was better that you left us, that you did the work on the cross and, and returned to the Father and sent us the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would gain a new understanding of the person of the Holy Spirit, even this morning. Give us courage and boldness in the Spirit, this helper, this advocate, this ally that we have to make your name great, Father God, and to bring your kingdom here on earth, to draw people to you, to relationship with you, so we can fully live as we were meant to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.